This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg and welcome to episode 71 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, after all the good news we heard from Russia on its coronavirus vaccine, doubts are now growing because of the apparent haste with which it was created. We've got context on that story and on vaccines generally coming up in this episode. Plus, fresh evidence that lockdowns just don't work in an African context and some ugly consequences from the UK's mismanagement of the pandemic. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. In today's COVID-19 headline, South Africa's daily new infections hit a nine-week low on Tuesday with a reported 2,511 cases, the smallest since June the 10th, and further confirmation that the pandemic peaked here three weeks ago. The number of active cases at 129,000 are back at the level of a month ago and around 43,000 below the records that were set in late July. Deaths, too, are now on a distinct declining trend, with Tuesday's 130 mortalities down by a third on levels reported earlier in the month. The trend has also seen South Africa falling on global lists from 4th to 7th in the number of active cases, and from 5th to 13th in new cases and 10th in daily death. Globally, however, infections continue to rise with a jump in India and a resurgence in the United States, which now accounts for 37% of the total, pushing the world's active cases to 6.3 million. In total, more than 16.5 million people have been infected with the virus, 750,000 of them have died, and 13.5 million recovered. India at 61,000, Brazil and the US, both over 50,000, are far and away the countries with the highest new daily infections. Lots happening on the vaccine front. After Tuesday's news from Russia that it has perfected a COVID-19 antidote and even its president's daughter has signed up to, lots of progress from elsewhere. In the United States, pharma group Moderna signed a $1.5 billion deal with the U.S. government to provide 100 million doses of its experimental vaccine. And here at home, President of the South African Medical Research Council, Professor Glenda Gray, has confirmed that two more vaccines developed by multinationals will be trialed in South Africa from next month, one from Johnson & Johnson, the other from Novavax. Earlier in the week, Professor Gray was screened and vaccinated at the University of Cape Town as part of the Oxford University trial, which is also running in the UK and Brazil. Lots more on the subject coming up as our partners at the Wall Street Journal raise some concerns over the Russian claims and discoveries Dr. Nolutando Nemwatsirani provides context. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News.
Most medical experts around the world believed it would be well into 2021 before a COVID-19 vaccine would become available. But on Tuesday, Russia said its researchers had succeeded where the rest of the world is working, with mass inoculation tabled to start soon. But now there are concerns that Russia's Sputnik V project bypassed key aspects of the usual vaccine development protocols. Here's Thomas Grove, who's the Wall Street Journal's correspondent in Moscow. Russian President Vladimir Putin announced that Russia had indeed become the first country to register a COVID vaccine. And he went on to give some details about that, including the fact that his own daughter had been vaccinated as well. This is a pretty important announcement for Russia because this is happening at a moment when there's a global race to find a COVID vaccine. So Russia announcing this is a, is a big deal for Russia. So here's what we know about the Russian vaccine. Russia was able to harness the broad personnel of its military together with some of its legacy from the Soviet Union of, of very good science. And so these things together, combined with the fact that it shortened trial times, it was only run two test phases as opposed to three. Basically, what you have in the West is a three-phase trial system. Russia's only gone through two, and with uh, much reduced numbers as well. They're doing something which they call conditionally registering it. And that means that there will be another round of tests after it's registered. And those tests will happen in tandem with the voluntary vaccinations of, uh, of health workers. If that third trial goes poorly, it can still be taken from the markets. I think a lot of the news about the Russian vaccines have been met with some skepticism kind of worldwide because you see shorter testing periods, for example, uh, smaller testing groups and, and things like that. Russia hasn't shared all of its data regarding the vaccine and the process that has gone into making the vaccine. So it's really hard to say exactly what's going on right now in Russia versus what's going on in the West. There's a sense that this isn't a full-fledged vaccine. Here in Russia, a coronavirus vaccine is a very important question because in, in spring, Russia had the second highest caseload in the world. And then on top of it, I think there's a certain desire for uh, Russia to be seen as the scientific powerhouse that it was during the Cold War when it was competing with the West. I think it's also interesting to point out that there's been a lot of nationalism behind the race for a vaccine. And what you see is a lot of countries basically pouring money into the institutes that they trust. It's really about just production quantities, because whenever you're first starting to produce a medicine such as this, you can only produce so much, and there's only certain labs that will be able to produce it. Anybody wants to get that first vaccine to vaccinate their own populations, Russia's healthcare workers will be the first ones to have the district to them. We do know that there are some private companies who are already working together with the institute that's behind this vaccine to make sure that the, the, the production that happens will happen on a scale needed to, to, to vaccinate large swaths of the population. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. Well, let's welcome back to Dr. Nolotandu Nemwatsarani from Discovery. There are a couple of things that have hit the news that we need some unpacking on. First of all, the Russian vaccine. Now, we've just played a clip a little earlier from our colleagues at the Wall Street Journal who are a little skeptical that the Russians were able to put this vaccine together so quickly. How are you reading it? The time it takes usually for a vaccine to be developed is usually years. And in this situation of a pandemic, 
it's fast-tracked and we are expecting a commercially available product in 12 to 18 months. And the reason why it takes long is because there are various phases of testing the vaccine. And if you think about the process, it starts in the preclinical stages where it's still in the lab, where you then make sure that the vaccine is ready for it to be used in humans. Preclinical, we usually use animal studies to almost prove that the vaccine actually does do what we intend for it to do. And then once we have almost tested it in that environment, then it moves into clinical trials. And the human trials, they have got various phases. It's phase one trials, where it's usually small numbers of people where you are still testing the dose to see if it will be the right dose that people can be able to take without getting adverse effects. And then after that, you move to phase two trials. These are usually several hundreds of cases that you test your vaccine in. And you are actually also testing mainly the safety and efficacy of the vaccine. And I think most of the trials that we've heard about were reporting on some of the early data around the response of the immune system to the vaccine. But the most important trial data that is critical before licensing takes place is really the phase three trials. Phase three trials usually enroll thousands of patients. And here you actually want to test just beyond basic safety and efficacy to say, does it actually work? And does it work in a broader group of patients? And is it really safe? And I think the skepticism and maybe just the concern that has been raised around the Russian vaccine is that it does not seem to have the phase three trials. And I think they've not been able to deny that fact. So the registration of the vaccine is based on phase two trials. It was very interesting to read that they actually amended their regulations around April to almost allow for registration and licensing of COVID-related products with phase two trial data. So I think that's the concern because as much as there is a rush from everyone to actually get a vaccine that is going to be effective in managing and curbing the spread of COVID-19, but we actually want to make sure that we do have a safe vaccine. And I think that's where the concern is right now, that there is this rush to register and provide licensing and approval for this from the Russian government without the necessary steps having been adhered to according to global standards. The president, Putin, has been saying that even his own yes. daughter has already had the yes. vaccine. So there might just be a tad of politics involved here. Yeah, I think there is a bit of that. And I think it's also just politics and the rush to say we are the first to have registered this particular product, which the world is waiting for. I don't know if people are aware, the only two therapeutic agents that have been approved for COVID-19 are also from Russia. And there is not much known about those two as well in terms of clinical data. Interestingly enough, this product was also on the news just a week or so ago, where the president of Russia was indicating that South Africa will be recipients of this product and that it has already received approval. But locally, the evaluation clinically has not really shown a great support for that molecule as well. So there seems to be a trend toward early approval of some of these COVID-related therapeutics without following the normal standards and the trial phases that are ordinarily followed by other countries. This is fascinating because it's a whole new world for most of us to observe. But one of the trials that has got the approval it seems, of everybody in the community, 
is the one with the Oxford University, which is also happening here in South Africa, including our own Professor Glenda Gray from the head of the Medical Research Council who went in to herself get vaccinated. That must tell you that there's perhaps some... No, definitely. South Africa is going to be involved. There are two trials, and there's a third one that's going to be announced, a vaccine trial. So the first one is the VETS one. I think the principal investigator there is Professor Shabir Mahdi, which is the Oxford one. And Prof. Glenda Gray is partnering with Johnson & Johnson. So they are testing a, a different vaccine from the one VETS is testing. And I mean, it's a U.S.-based company. And she is, I think, the principal investigator in that particular trial. And I think there's the third one that South Africa is going to be involved in. And I think it's important when we see scientists on the other side, becoming the recipients of the trial vaccine, showing confidence and wanting to almost participate, not only as, you know, a scientist, but also as a patient who is participating in this data. It's gathering data for future use in terms of the trial data that will come out once we have completed the studies done locally. And I think it's important for South Africa to participate in these trials because we must be part of a data generation and we must contribute when these vaccines are licensed in future. We must almost have been part of that generation of knowledge and information. And it's important because it also brings diversity into the patient population and patient pool that the vaccines are tested in terms of the participants that the vaccine is tested on. So we really are very happy that Prof. Gray has led the way and shown that she is confident about what the vaccine can do, and therefore she is willing to be, you know, a participant rather than just an observer, <laughs> a scientist who's just sitting on the sidelines. How are you reading the whole vaccine story at the moment? There is, for instance, with Russia, there's room for hope. Maybe they've got it right, although they haven't gone through the processes. Here in South Africa, we're intimately involved, as you said, with some very promising vaccine trials, and there's many elsewhere in the world also being tested. Looking at the data that says about more than 200 vaccines are currently being trialed, 25 of them almost getting into trial phases. And then there's about five studies apparently in terms of human trials. So I think there's lots of activity and we are getting some early results around the vaccines showing some positive immune response from the participants that have participated in these trials. I think for now, if you're a clinician and scientist and epidemiologist, you want to be cautiously optimistic. We don't want to just be optimistic without understanding that there are various steps that still need to take place before we can get to a level that says now we're confident there is a product that can be commercially available. And I think it's going to take a few more months and we do need that rigor for public trust because if the public feels like we're taking shortcuts and we're cutting corners, specifically thinking about the anti-vaxxers, if anything goes wrong, it actually will then set back the whole vaccine trial story. And we don't want that. We want to make sure that all the necessary steps are taken so that eventually we can have an effective vaccine that can do what it is intended to do. And as far as South Africa's experience is concerned, we are bucking the world trend on mortality percentages. It does look like we've peaked as well here in this country. There is room for optimism, surely, on that front. Definitely, definitely. But Alec, I have to emphasize this because we've seen, I mean, if I think about the story of the U.S. where they started seeing a decrease in the number of cases and they became complacent, 
And then suddenly they saw a second peak. This is not even unique to COVID-19, you know, of previous pandemics where the first wave maybe was not as bad as the second wave, but it is up to us to make sure that we don't experience that terrible second wave. And I think there's no room for complacency. We need to continue with our non-pharmacological interventions, making sure that we adhere to social distancing, wearing of masks. We have to make sure that we get rid of COVID-19 and we cannot afford a second wave, unfortunately. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. Professor Alan Whiteside joins us from Norfolk in the UK. Alan, lovely talking with you as always. Your latest blog that came out today had some fascinating focus points, not least whether the lockdown doesn't work in Africa. You, you quoted a couple of guys who'd written a piece for The Lancet. Now, maybe for those who are a little outside of the professional arena, The Lancet is a, a highly reputable journal. I would say it is the premier medical journal in the world. Uh, impact factor, access, literacy, breaking news. The Lancet is it. It's the S South African Medical Journal on steroids. And I guess before you get anything published there, you better be sure, given that it's scientists who are the audience, that you've got it right. Oh, absolutely. Their review process is amazing. And I'm very honored to have had an article published in it uh, some years ago on uh, we called it new variant famine because we were looking at the effect of AIDS on food production. Alan, in your column, you quote Kalk and Schultz for the piece that they wrote in The Lancet. It's got a lot to do with Africa, so I can see, given your roots, why this interested you. Yes, indeed. Um, it's uh, written by two, I guess they're Germans, because they both seem to work for German organizations. One is based in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and the other is in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Malawi. And what conclusions have they reached? Their conclusion is, and I'll read you their last sentence, we must balance COVID-19 directed control measures with other challenges following the well-established public health principle, equal attention to equal health threats. And essentially in this brief communication, because it is a letter, they're saying that uh, the things that we're putting in place don't seem applicable to Africa and may actually cause more harm than the disease itself. Things putting in place as per uh, the lockdown. Absolutely. It's the lockdown they're talking about. And they talk about the cumulative effects of the psychosocial, economic and health damages, uh, hunger, health changing health-seeking behaviours, postponed treatments, which, by the way, are also happening in the West, people not going for cancer care. Now, you know South Africa very well, having uh, been at universities here in senior positions. Uh, would their thesis also hold true for this country? I'm not so sure, because South Africa is uh, far more advanced. But I think that their thesis would, to some extent, hold true in South Africa. I think what is lacking, and I think this is the South African problem, is the inability to reflect on uh, the new information and to be adaptive. So there are things that have happened with the South African lockdown which uh, were not didn't seem to make a lot of sense. And I fear that the reaction to the reaction also doesn't make a lot of sense. That's so sad because in certain areas in South Africa, the... Uh, reaction from particularly the medical fraternity has been amazing. Professor Guy Richards, one of the first to use dexamethasone, for instance, some of the other treatments that 
that might have been pioneered here, which are really working well. But there's almost like a blunt tool that's being applied at a higher level. Yes, I think that's exactly it. Um, and there's also there's what we call confirmation bias, where people are doing something, therefore it must be right. And we see that far too often in South Africa, in my opinion. So if we're talking about the DRC and Malawi, where lockdowns don't work, much of South Africa is similar to those countries, the third world, the rural areas. I guess there's plenty of pause for thought there. I think there is. Um, well, you know how well the lockdowns have worked in South Africa. I haven't been home for nine months now, so I really am not too certain of the situation. But I think there is pause for thought. And I think, uh, for me, the most disappointing part of the situation in South Africa is the polarization between this medical, some, many of the medical officers who are following the government line and the uh, alternative thinkers. And uh, I think I don't think the alternative thinkers are right, including your Neil Hudson, I think it is. Next. But I also don't think the government's right. Yeah, if only they could get into a room together and swap notes, perhaps they would come to a conclusion. But the other issue that you raise in your blog this week that really caught my attention was the whole discussion around excess deaths and particularly the, the rebound that we're seeing in Europe on infections and how that's impacting. Oh, isn't that interesting? Because now we're below the level where we should be if you take the seven-day rolling averages. So excess deaths spike up, and now they've fallen below, which means that uh, there are fewer people dying than, than we would be expecting. I think the key point about this is who's dying. And one of the realities with uh, COVID-19 is that it is the older people who are at greatest risk. Uh, there's a wonderful graph just come out from uh, Sweden, which shows what you're likely of dying of COVID is, and it really does increase dramatically if you're over 70 and 80, and particularly for men. So these excess deaths of people who were coming to the end of their lives anyway, and, and they, it's happened a lot sooner. Now it seems people are living longer. It's very bizarre. So interesting. I get, I get so excited by these graphs. And the information coming from Sweden, coming from Sweden uh, does give uh, us some interesting insights as well, uh, given the way that they've approached the whole pandemic. Yes, there's an article in the conversation on it, on that, uh, which I uh, cite in my blog. Uh, they obviously were told they were doing the wrong thing. Uh, the Swedish public health people have said, well, we did the right thing. And I think the answer is, uh, and it's not going to be one that you'd necessarily want to hear, is that we'll know a great deal more in about five or six months. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. And to close off tonight's episode, the UK government's mismanagement of the pandemic is drawing all the wrong kind of attention. Here are our partners from the Wall Street Journal. Wall Street Journal economics reporter Jason Douglas joins us from London. Good to see you, Jason. Thanks for having me, Mark. And Jason, the UK is certainly dealing with economic challenges, but the health impact is tremendous as well. That's right. So the UK already has the worst death toll in Europe from COVID-19. The pandemic hit very hard here. It has the worst death toll even if you adjust for population size. So the UK is the second biggest country in the EU after Germany. Um, and now it looks almost certain that it's going to have the worst economic hit from the nationwide lockdown that came into force at the end of March. 
Um, so the UK appears to be looking at a hit of about 20%, so a loss of GDP of about 20% in the second quarter. That's bigger than Spain, that's bigger than France, that's bigger than Italy, bigger than Germany, and bigger even the United States, which is down about 10%. So there are two reasons for this. One is the U- was kind of the, the timing and the duration of the UK's lockdown. So it just happened that, uh, you know, it was just sort of spread over the second quarter in a way that it maybe wasn't in some of these other countries. They were, some of them were starting to reopen uh, a little bit earlier. And the other reason is the UK is a very services dominated economy. Lots of restaurants, bars, shopping, theatres, all the kind of stuff that makes the UK a fun place to be. All these things had to stop. Uh, and so the, the hit to the economy was larger for that reason than it was than somewhere in Germany, for example, which we have a lot more, a much bigger share of manufacturing in the economy. So, Jason, with this economic slowdown, as far as perhaps jumping that next hurdle to jumpstart things, what's taking place right now? On the policy side, the Bank of England is doing loads of stuff, cut interest rates, pumped money into the economy. Uh, the Treasury, the UK Treasury, has done lots as well. So like other European companies, it's been paying workers' wages. That's due to come to an end, I think, in a couple of months now, in October. They've also been handing out cash to companies, making sure. So they've done a lot on the policy side to try and keep the economy moving. The other kind of positive thing is there are signs, tentative signs, that consumer spending is starting to come back. People have been doing a lot of online shopping during the pandemic, and there are signs now that things are that consumers are shopping again. The housing market's ticked up again, so there's put some policy stuff there to kind of support uh, housing transactions. Um, but there's still just this great deal of uncertainty, and it just looks like this is going to be a real long slog for the UK to come out of this. The Bank of England last week was talking about it'll be the end of next year, the end of 2021, before the UK economy recovers all the ground lost to the pandemic and the lockdown. Prior to the pandemic, there was lots of concern about the fate of the economy with Brexit. How does that play into what's happening now? And will that have an impact moving into the future? Right. Yes, the B word. So you're right. Brexit kind of dominated everything here in the UK for, I mean, for years, basically. And then the the, the pandemic just, uh, you know, blew that out of the water, if you like. But it is still an issue and it's not gone away. So the UK left the EU officially at the end of January. But this year was supposed to be devoted to uh, negotiating a comprehensive free trade agreement with the EU that's due to come into force at the end of this year to kind of smooth the UK's departure, if you like, to make sure that there isn't too much disruption to all these complex supply chains and all that kind of stuff that have built up over the years to make sure that trade can keep flowing as freely as possible. What The UK could be in this terrible position where it's been through the pandemic and then it gets towards the end of the year and there's no free trade agreement with Europe and then you have the risk of sort of disruption to trade that would hinder the recovery from the pandemic. So that's kind of the, that's kind of the worry. Having said all that, uh, it's still possible there will be a trade deal. It's still possible that perhaps the two sides will figure something out to kind of make sure that there isn't this cliff edge, if you like, at the end of the year. Um, but we just don't know. And um, as I say, progress has been a little bit slow. But that's certainly something that's looming back into view pretty quickly here. This has been episode 71 of Inside COVID-19. The full interviews of the highlights featured in this podcast are available separately on the biznews.com website or its app. Thanks for being with us. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio.
This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.